It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. And first sports network listeners, welcome to another episode of the call sheet. This is your host, Kevin Smith with you now after the week 12 games are in the books and another fantastic week of NFL football. And so we're going to talk all about it on today's show. And I'm happy for you to join me here on the fans first sports network. And if you get a chance, man, give me, give my, uh, my YouTube breakdowns. A look, I've done some new ones on the, the Pittsburgh Steelers. I know there's probably some Steelers fans listening to this on their offense uh, as they rolled out their post-Matt Canada look in Sunday's game. Check out the call sheet breakdowns on the SCN, the Steel Curtain Network YouTube channel. I've been doing those the last couple of weeks. If you get a chance, give it a listen. And as I weigh in on, on what Pittsburgh did differently in the, in the first of the post-Matt Canada era, uh, and you know, I mean, they had great success and that's something we're going to talk about in the second part of the show. When we talk about offensive coordinators, that's going to be a big subject today. Offensive coordinators. Uh, why is that job so hard? Why do people think it's so easy and what do they really do? I mean, one of the, one of the things I think is a great mystery to people is, uh, what's an offense coordinator really do? Everybody identifies it simply with play calling, but it's far more complicated than that. So bear with me today. I'm a little under the weather, man. My voice is a little shaky. Uh, the weather here on the East Coast has changed. And so whenever that happens, I don't know, I get sick, man. It's like clockwork. So I hope that uh, I hope it's not too much of a distraction. All right. So real quick, man, I, I watched I watched in addition to watching the Steelers like I watch them every week. I try to watch as many games as I can. And I got to see almost all of the Philadelphia Buffalo game 
which was the late game on Sunday. And I got to see almost all of Monday night's Chicago-Minnesota game. And man, what a contrast in football games, right? Eagles-Bills. Eagles now 11-1 on the season. I'm sorry, 10-1. They beat the Bills 38-34 in overtime. You have two phenomenal quarterbacks, Josh Allen and Jalen Hurts, engaged in a tremendous duel. The two of them combine for nearly 800 yards of offense. Allen playing tremendous football uh, right up until the last moment there. We're in overtime with a chance to win the game. He and Gabe Davis miscommunicate on an option route, and the Bills are forced to settle for a field goal. And it almost felt like right in that moment, the game was over because Jalen Hurts and the Eagles take the ball. And Hurts, cool as can be, they go right down the field and score on an eight-yard quarterback draw to end that thing. That was just a fantastic football game. What an amazing performance by Eagles kicker Jake Elliott to nail a 59-yard field goal with 20 seconds remaining in windy and rainy conditions at the Lincoln Philly. You just got the feeling, man, you were watching the best the NFL had to offer. And then on Monday night, Bears-Vikings. In a game that was interestingly compelling. I mean, it came down to a field goal on the final play where the Bears win it with a walk-off field goal. But you couldn't have gotten any opposite of an extreme as far as quarterback play was concerned, right? The Josh Dobbs and Justin Fields duel, if you could call it that, resulted in six turnovers by those two quarterbacks. In many regards, you know, you got to give them a break, right? Fields not surrounded by a great supporting cast other than DJ Moore. Uh, bad offensive line play. Was running for his life pretty much the entire night. And Dobbs thrust into a role that he's just not really prepared for. He's not really a long-term starter in the league. He's a guy that's a great, great story, but is best suited as a backup. And he's now being asked to sort of play over his head. And, and it's catching up to him. So, I mean, you know, again, that you, you saw a little bit of the of the best and the worst at the quarterback position in those two games, but they're both really compelling games. And that's the thing about the NFL this year. The, the play may not be as great as it once was. Tom Brady weighed in on this recently, complaining about the quality of play in the league. But the games have been awesome. I mean, the previous week, there were six games that were ended on walk-off field goals and a couple others that came down to the final minute and another, a couple other thrilling contests this past week. So, man, maybe the play's not there, but the but the competitiveness is. And I think the NFL's getting what it wants. Good games, competitive environments, parity. All right. So this is episode 33 of the call sheet. And as everybody knows, uh, we're going to honor a player who wore number 33. And I'm going to reach back and talk about a guy. Maybe this is a name you've heard before, but you may not know the story. So I'm a history teacher, and I really like the origins of things. And I really like to tell stories. And I'm going to tell the story today of Ollie Matson, who was a Hall of Fame running back for and, and wide receiver for the Chicago Cardinals back when Chicago had a team called the Cardinals and the Los Angeles Rams in the 1950s and early 1960s. But Ollie Matson is a really fascinating and complicated story that, that tells the story of, of our history as a, as a nation and the history of the NFL as much as it tells his personal story. I mean, so briefly, right? Ollie Matson again, wide receiver running back for the Chicago Cardinals and LA Rams in the 50s and 60s. He finished his career in 1966 with the Eagles. And when he retired, he had the second most yards from scrimmage in NFL history, trailing only the great Jim Brown. 
But, you know, his story is a lot deeper than the numbers or the accolades. I mean, it's really a story about American history in the mid-20th century, especially the story of a country coming to grips with its racial history and about a star athlete who really experienced like the ultimate highs of being a star athlete and also the lows of that stardom. So to begin, Ali Matson played his college ball at the University of San Francisco. That's a school that doesn't even have a college football program anymore. And in 1951, he was selected an All-American while leading USF to a perfect 9-0 record. But interestingly, this was the day, obviously, before we had anything resembling a on-the-field national champion. The, the champions were chosen by the media. And to be a champion, you had to play in one of the big bowl games. The Rose Bowl was, was reserved for the Pac-10 champ against the Big Ten champ, and USF was neither. But they did have opportunities to play in the other big bowls of the day, which were the Orange, Sugar, and Gator Bowls. But all three of those bowls refused to extend USF an invitation because Matson their star player, was black. And this was 1951. And those bowls were all held in the Jim Crow South, which still honored segregation. And the notion that a black kid might be the central figure in one of those bowls, that was simply unacceptable to the authorities in that area. So USF did not play in a bowl game that season. And Matson went on then to be drafted third overall by the Cardinals in 1952. But prior to joining them, he participated in the Olympic Games, which were held that summer in Helsinki, Finland. And Matson was a sprinter where he won a bronze medal in the 400 and he won a silver as part of the U.S.'s 4x400 relay team. And then he went on to play his NFL season. He won the Rookie of the Year with the Cardinals, but he was drafted, right? This was, this was still the Korean War. And Matson was drafted and he missed the 1953 season due to his compulsory service in the Army, came back to the NFL, back to Chicago the following year, and then proceeded to make four straight Pro Bowls before he was traded to the Rams. Forget this, nine players. The Rams traded Ali Matson. I'm sorry, the, the, the Cardinals traded Ali Matson to the Rams for nine players. When people think about some of the most fascinating trades in NFL history, uh, two come to mind right away. The Herschel Walker deal where Minnesota traded five players and seven draft picks to Dallas for Walker, which worked out fabulously for the Cowboys because they, they kind of built their 90s dynasty team off of that deal. And they think about the, the famous Mike Ditka trade when Ditka, the coach and GM of the Saints, traded his entire draft to acquire Ricky Williams. But, you know, Ali Matson to the Rams for nine players. That was kind of like the OG of blockbuster deals. And then, you know, finally after Matson retired, he was diagnosed with dementia, which would later be traced to the degenerative disease CTE. That's become all too common in former NFL players. Matson's family said he was unable to speak for four full years before his death in 2011. And that in those years, he woke up every day immediately barbecued chicken at around 6.30 in the morning and then washed all of the family's cars. And he did that day after day after day, unable to remember that he had done the same thing the day before. So from a college All-American whose brilliance made him a target for bigots as America grappled with segregation, to a medal-winning Olympian, to a veteran 
to a future Hall of Fame professional who was so good the Rams parted with nine players to acquire him and finally to a victim of CTE that serves as a reminder of how brutal the sport of football was for a long, long time. Ali Matson, number 33, is a truly compelling figure. Okay, so moving on now real quick. Let, let's talk a little bit about some of the big news of the week. I mentioned that we're going to talk in the second half of the show about the offensive coordinator position. And the reason we're going to talk about that position is there's been there's been a bunch of firings recently. Just this week, the Carolina Panthers fired Frank Reich, their head coach, something that Jeff Hartman and I talked about yesterday on our Whip Around podcast. And it's not really surprising that Carolina fa- fired Reich. You think you think to yourself, oh, they only gave him 11 games. That's one of the quickest tenures of any head coach in NFL history. That in and of itself is surprising. It's not surprising Carolina fired Reich because their owner, David Tepper, who bought the team in 2018, is now about to hire his sixth head coach. He will have gone through six head coaches in six years. The Pittsburgh Steelers, by contrast, have had three head coaches in my lifetime, and I'm 53 years old. They've had three head coaches since 1969. David Tepper is an impulsive guy. David Tepper is a hedge fund billionaire. David Tepper once said that when he goes to a restaurant and he gets bad service, he thinks about buying the restaurant just so he can fire the staff. I mean, a guy with that mentality, how patient is he going to be with his head coaches to allow a team to develop? It's that impulsive mindset that has turned Carolina into one of the worst franchises in in the NFL. Since buying the team, they've got the second worst record of any team in the league. And when you think about like, man, Tepper's got to hire somebody. Who's going to want that job? When you think about, you know, He's probably wants an offensive coach. He wants an offensive guy to work with their young quarterback, Bryce Young, who is struggling. And you think about, all right, well, who might be some of the up-and-coming coordinators who are going to be in line for head coaching jobs? There's Ben Johnson in Detroit, maybe Brian Johnson in Philly. There's Bobby Slowick, who's done a great job in Houston, bringing along C.J. Stroud. Maybe those guys will be up for a head coaching job. Maybe Carolina will reach out to them. If you're any of those guys and you understand that in a given offseason, in an average NFL offseason, the typical amount of job openings, head coaching vacancies, is around six. Is Carolina the one you want? There's probably going to be an opening in Washington. There might be an opening in Arizona. There might be an opening with the Giants. There's, there's going to be several others, man. Is is Carolina the job you want? <clears throat> if you could go to the Chargers and have Justin Herbert as your quarterback and live in <laughs> in LA, right? Well, I mean that's appealing to some, not to others. But build your build your you know t- uh, tie your head coaching career to Justin Herbert. Wouldn't you Wouldn't you rather do that than a questionable Bryce Young with a meddlesome owner? The meddlesome owner model has never been great. Daniel Snyder's shown that in Washington. To a degree, Jerry Jones has shown that in Dallas. So, again, moving on from Frank Reich may have been unfair after just 11 games, but it's probably not shocking given David Tepper's resume and his MO. 
And finding a quality coach to replace Frank Reich will be a challenge given the conditions in Carolina, the poor roster, the fact that they've traded away so many of their draft picks, and the fact that right now the owner is a fair a guy who I don't know if anybody would want to work for. But there have also been some offensive coordinator uh, firings, and those have been interesting as well. And, and that leads me to a broader conversation about the offensive coordinator position. What, what does it really entail? What does it entail being an offensive coordinator? And, you know, I've never done, done it at the highest levels, but I've done it for a long time on the high school level as both an offensive coordinator and a head coach. And I can tell you those are two very, very different jobs that require two very, very different skill sets. And so after the break, we'll take a quick break right here. And then after the break, we're going to weigh in on that subject. What does it mean to be an offensive coordinator? What do you do? Why do fans think it's so easy? And why is it so much harder than most people perceive it to be? And then we'll look at those firings and how are the teams faring who have fired their offensive coordinators and where might they go from here? So come on back after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Welcome back to the call sheet. Kevin Smith with you. Took a couple throat lozenges, whatever they call those things, and try to hold it together here for the second half of, of the show. And again, man, bear with me as I, as I fight through a little cold. I appreciate everybody tuning in here. As we talk now about the nature of the offensive coordinator position, we were talking before the break about the dismissal of Frank Reich in Carolina. His dismissal was preceded 
by a couple of really interesting firings in both Buffalo and Pittsburgh of their offensive coordinators. Ken Dorsey dismissed in Buffalo and Matt Canada dismissed in Pittsburgh. And in both situations, the offenses in those respective uh, cities have really picked up. And whether that may be a temporary thing, because when somebody gets fired, everyone's put on notice and everybody kind of picks up their game a little bit, or whether it's going to be a lasting development remains to be seen. But in the short term, those firings have been a positive for the offenses in Buffalo and Pittsburgh. And firing an offensive coordinator is a surprisingly popular thing. It's amazing how many fan bases are dissatisfied with their offensive coordinators. And I want to I want to take a little bit of a deep dive into why that is. Why why do so many people not like their team's offensive coordinator? And and what is it exactly that an offensive coordinator does? I mean, I have some experience with this again at the high school level. I've been an offensive coordinator on and off over my 30 years of coaching. I'm currently the head coach and but also the play caller at Ocean City High School. And, and wearing both of those hats can be tricky. They're two different jobs. They're, they're One of those jobs is very, very specific in terms of its focus. The other one is much more broad. It can be hard at times to do both. But let's just focus on the offensive coordinator part of it right now. You know, you can kind of start with this question. Why do so many fans think they'd make great offensive coordinators or at least think that they can do it better than the lousy OC of their favorite team. And I think that the answer to that is because of a misconception about the nature of the job. And that that misconception is that most fans think it's all about the plays and the play calling. And I mean, that's true to a degree, but, but in a way that's, that's like saying that, uh, that a, a cake is simply the product that comes out of the oven and that, the, all the work that went into the preparing that cake, the, the baking of that cake itself is sort of discarded and simply the product. Whether it tastes good or not, that's all that really matters. And in a results-oriented business like professional sports, that is all that matters. Uh, you know, when you're eating a cake, you probably don't care too much about the work that went into it. You just want to know if it tastes good. And if it doesn't taste good, it stinks. And the same thing tends to be true with the way we perceive offensive coordinators. If, if your offense doesn't score a lot of points, then you stink and the coordinator stinks. But if we step back from that and we look at the process, I think maybe you can get a greater appreciation for the job. So let's talk about that. What does an offensive coordinator do uh, on a weekly basis? Let's confine the discussion to, to in season. And really it starts each week with gathering an intimate understanding of the opposing defense. Every week, an offensive coordinator has to begin their work with an extensive film breakdown of their opponents. What does the defense intend to do? And that film study involves uh, an intimate understanding of the opponent's fronts, their favorite stunts, their coverages, the situational defense that they play, the personnel that they use, whether both in their base defense, their situational defense, a lot of a lot of coaches these days rely on metrics and scouting services at companies like Next Gen Stats and PFF to supply information for them about tendencies and personnel groups and things like that. 
but there's still a ton of just old school film work and charting where, where you're just pouring over the film and you're writing stuff down and you're gathering that information and you're pulling that information together. And that information is going to tell you a story about your opponent and you need to be wise in paying attention to the story it tells. You need to be prepared for what they're going to play, how they're going to play it, when they're going to play it, who they're going to play it with. And you need to have answers for all of those things. And once you've prepared for your opponent, which again, we're talking about hours and hours of prep in this phase alone. Now you have to map up your own plan, right? How do you intend to manipulate that, that defense? And this is usually a collaborative effort, right? This, is, this involves pulling together your resources, the other coaches on the offensive side of the ball. And getting, you know, they've they've probably been given tasks, you know, break down certain things. You may you may say to your offensive line coach, you're responsible for mapping their fronts, and and you may you may say to a, uh, the, the running backs coach, give me the get me their stunts, right? Give me their three favorite stunts and when they like to run them, and you and you bring these 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 groups together and you start to talk about, all right, well, what do we like against this stuff? The offensive coordinator has to really work with that staff in the construction, what will inevitably become your call sheet, right? The namesake of this program, the call sheet. And you may want to include important uh, personnel from the team, player personnel in on some of these meetings, like obviously the quarterback, the more that you get, the more freedom you give your quarterback. Like if you've got a Patrick Mahomes and you rely on him to make a lot of decisions on the field. Obviously you want to include him in this game planning phase that takes place during the week. And if you got a younger quarterback, a guy that you don't let him make as many decisions, he may come in at the end of the process where you're simply informing him of what you're going to do, as opposed to you're collaborating with him. So in the construction of that call sheet, you know, which I think the call sheets are fascinating, right? I mean, Andy Reid, has got his massive multiple page call sheet that everybody says looks like the midnight menu at Denny's. And then, you know, the old, the air raid guys, there aren't a whole lot of air raid guys in the NFL. They're more at the college level, but the Cliff Kingsbury air raid guys, sometimes they, they'd have like what looked to be little more than sort of a notepad with a, with a, you know, a dozen plays scribbled down on it. So the, the, the range of the menu can be fascinating. But I'm looking at a call sheet of ours right now. Uh, the call sheet, one of the call sheets that I used for one of our football games this year, and I, you know, I don't think it's too dissimilar to ones that NFL coaches use. It's not as involved. I don't have uh, a massive number of plays on it, but it's it's not so much the plays as it is the construction of the call sheet in terms of the information it's going to provide you in a game. So, for example, on one side of our call sheet, we have all the plays we want to run out of all the formations we intend to use. We've got plays from 11 personnel, from 12 personnel, from 21 personnel. We've got all the plays we want to run both left and right from our bunch set, our wing set, our deuce, our trips, our empty, our ace, all these different formations we want to carry. And we want to decide how many plays do we want to carry from each formation. I usually have a cutoff point where I realize if I get if I run 50 plays in a game in high school, 60 to 65 in the pros, 
how many do I want on the call sheet? How what's what's realistic for me to be able to carry into a game? I'm, I, I try to carry about six formations every game and no more than ten formation, ten plays from each formation because realistically, that's taking me somewhere in the neighborhood of sixty plays, and I know I'm going to run certain things multiple times or from different looks, etc. So I don't need to load that call sheet up with 200 plays because I'm just wasting time. And so once I once I know that I've got all the plays from all the different formations, all the different looks that I want, now on the other side of the call sheet, I have all my situational stuff. I have plays I want to run from the left hash and from the right hash. And now the hashes in high school and college are different than they are in the NFL. They're much wider. So when you have the ball on the hash in high school, that provides – a significant advantage. You got 17 yards to one side of the field and 34 to 35 yards or so to the other side of the field. And so you can scheme a little more uh, based upon the location of the ball. In the NFL, not so much. Those hashes are so close together. It doesn't really provide an advantage. But anyway, I have hash calls. I have openers. And I love openers. I'm going to talk about openers in a minute. I got quick game stuff. I have red zone stuff, high red zone, which is from the 10 to the 20, low red zone, which is from the 10 and in. We got our screens. We got our gadgets. We have our counters. We have our motions. We've got our two minute plays. When I get into hurry up, what do we do? What are we running there? We've got our coming out plays, right? If we're backed up on our own goal line, what are we running there? We've got our must run plays, plays that we think are the best plays that we have this particular week against that particular defense, and we want to absolutely run those plays. You can't leave those plays on the call sheet. you got to call those plays in the game. You've got gadgets on there, man. What are are some of the goofy gadget plays we have called up that we think we might be able to catch this team with a halfback pass here, right, or a double reverse there, something along those lines. So it's incredibly incredible how involved a call sheet is when it comes to taking the – information you've garnered while doing your film study and meeting with your coaches and looking at what you do best and how that's going to work against your opponent and now building it out into something that will be usable on game night. And once you've done that, right, that's that again, now we're, we're, we're talking about dozens of hours now that, that have gone into this process. Now you have the most important thing to do. And the most important thing is now you got to prepare your team because a rule in coaching, and I think coaches forget sometimes, and it's, and it's kind of easy to forget because as a coach, you can sometimes fall in love with concepts. You can fall in love with plays. You can, you can look at a play on a whiteboard and be like, oh man, this play, this is going to work. This is great. Or you can, you can study film. Here's the thing that happens all the time. You watch film of, of your opponent and you watch them in, the, in their game two weeks ago. And you see them against some other team. And that other team is running a concept against them. That looks great. They're gashing them with this concept. But you don't have that concept in your offense. And you say to yourself, I'm putting that concept in this week. Right? Because that other team gashed these guys with that concept. And we're going to do that. And I can tell you this, man. In my experience, overwhelmingly, when you do that, when you when you add new stuff, entirely new concepts just during game week it never works it never works tweaking existing stuff finding new ways to run the stuff you're already good at that's really effective but just basically 
borrowing stuff from other teams because it worked for those teams and using it yourself doesn't work, man. And maybe now maybe some coaches get it to work, but in my experience, it doesn't because you're asking your kids to get really good at doing something that they haven't done before on a, on a short week of preparation. So preparation, man, the rule, I was, and as I, to finish my thought, the rule that coaches sometimes forget is this. It's not what you know as a coach. It's what you can prepare your team to execute well. If they can't execute it well, it doesn't matter how well you know it. You're not the one executing it in a game. And so if this is the NFL, you meet with your team on Tuesday and that, and you lay out the game plan for them on Tuesday. You practice it on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You walk through it on Saturday and you got to be ready to go on Sunday. And your position coaches are so important in this process. They're the key. To give you an example as to how important they are, let's say that I'm going up against a team that runs a base 3-4 defense, and they have a stud defensive line, like, like the Eagles do. And when an offense goes 11 personnel, however, they take one of those defensive linemen off the field. They get into a nickel look. They get into a 2-4-5. They bring on a D-back, and they take out one of those stud D-linemen. And that nickel player isn't nearly as good as that third defensive lineman. So I want to get them in that 2-4-5 as much as I possibly can. I want to go heavy on 11 personnel. But I also want to run the ball, man. Let's say, man, my identity is running the football. And I like to use tight ends. And I like to use a fullback or two-back sets. But my problem now is that in doing so, I'm going to have to run up against their 3-4 all the time. And so I say to myself, all right. I'm going to go 11 personnel. I'm going to get that second tight end or that fullback off the field. I'm going to put a third wide receiver on the field. But I'm going to stay committed to my power run concepts. In order to do that, I have to be able to get that wide receiver down into the box at times for him to become that, that blocker, that inline blocker that my tight end or my fullback was. Because when I do that, it lets me run some of my best stuff against their weaker looks on defense. And so who is going to be one of the most valuable players in the organization that week? The wide receiver coach. Because it's the wide receiver's coach, wide receiver coach's job to one, get the wide receiver who probably just wants to run around and catch passes to commit to that role. I got to get him to commit to being an inline blocker. And then I got to get him to execute it well. How, how much can I get the buy-in from my wide receiver and then my wide receiver coach to execute those responsibilities in a way that allows me to take advantage of their nickel defense by running my power concepts at it? And if I can't get that buy-in, or if my wide receiver's coach isn't good enough as a teacher to prepare that wide receiver to be able to do that thing, then I shouldn't run that stuff. Or if I do, it's going to be a problem. And so, right, I've studied the film. I've mapped the defense. I've charted their tendencies. I've met with the staff and probably some of my key offensive players. I've built my call sheet. I've covered every situation. I haven't even gotten to practice yet, man. I, I've, just, I've spent countless hours just doing all that. And now I've repped it at practice. I've run, I've run all the plays that I intend to run. I've run some plays that I may not run, but I want them. I want them on the call sheet just in case, just in case I get a certain look 
that maybe that defense hasn't shown in a while or a certain situation. And I've, I've drilled my quarterback, man. I've drilled my quarterback for all the looks he could possibly get. Maybe, maybe looks that we're going to have to make checks on whether we're going to let him make those checks himself or, or I'm going to make those checks for him. And we're going over like, Hey, when, the, when they put seven at the line, they get into one of these Brian Flores mug looks and they put seven dudes up front. We're checking to a hot, we're checking to a wide receiver screen, a now screen, right? Or, or we're motioning a wide receiver down into the formation to help block the seventh guy. And I've gone over every possible scenario that I think I can run into in that game. And only that, only after I've done all that, am I ready to call plays. And that, in and of itself, is a whole other ball game. Now we get to Sunday. And now we have to master that art. On my very first episode of this podcast, my very first episode of the call sheet, my guest was uh, Paul Callahan, uh, who's one of the, the finest coaches here in, in South Jersey where I coach. He was our offense coordinator at Ocean City for eight years. We went to three championship games with Paul. Uh, he broke tons of school records as ROC. He's a great play caller. And I asked Cal on that podcast, Cal, do you think play calling is an art or a science? And he said to him, it's more of a science. It's more process oriented. Cal, Cal said that he believed that play calling as the end of the process was really just a, about your preparation. Everything you've done that week prepared you for what was going to happen. And then calling plays was just sort of like checking boxes based upon the things you'd prepared for. Oh, they're giving me this. I'm doing that. Oh, they're giving me, now they're giving me this. Oh, now I'm doing that. And he just said that for him, it felt, it felt scientific. And all the answers were on his call sheet. And he just had to diagnose what was happening on the field and then find the answer. And for me, I mean, I've been a play caller for a long time, you know, various times over the years. I kind of feel like it's a little bit more of an art for me. Like I, I mentioned openers. I, I like having openers. I like to script, not entire series. I'll script, I'll script the first two series of a game just to find out information about the defense. But once we get past the first two series, I have a long, long, extensive list of, of, of first and 10 plays on my call sheet because I think first down is the most important down. I mean, obviously third down too, you got to keep the ball. But for me, first down sets everything up. I really want to win first down. I really want to make four yards on first down because I can tell you this, man, the difference between calling plays on second and five versus second and 10 is massive, massive. And so I like to know what I want to do on first down, and I like our team to know. But after that, for me, it's very much kind of an art, kind of a feel, right? I got a feel for things, man. I, I, want to, I want to get a feel for what the defense is doing. I want to have a feel for what I think our offense can do. What can we execute in that particular situation? What do I feel as though you know we're doing well? And maybe the scientific approach is better. I don't know. Maybe the artistic approach is, is a little bit better. I think it, it fits people's personalities, quite honestly. And I think that there's more than one way to do it. But, you know, the great ones figure out what works best for them. But in the end, in the end, you know, and obviously some OCs are better than others at calling plays. In the end, I believe firmly that 
the reason that offensive coordinators fail, most of them anyway, is not because of their play calling. It's because of their preparation. It is the preparation which sets up everything else. Which brings me back to Ken Dorsey in Buffalo and Matt Cannon in Pittsburgh. You know, Ken Dorsey was kind of like the hot guy there for a little while. I mean, he he was hired by Buffalo in 2019 to be their quarterbacks coach, and he really helped Josh Allen develop. Within a year, Allen had become an MVP candidate. And then eventually Dorsey earned a promotion offensive coordinator. And, you know, the Bills took off. They improved in every statistical category, despite a tough schedule and Allen hurting his elbow. And it just looked like Dorsey was going to be the guy for a long time, maybe the guy that would get the Bills to a Super Bowl. But then this year, the they just they they regressed. They were inconsistent, and Allen turned the ball over way too much. And then they had kind of a late game meltdown and a loss to Denver, and that was it. They fired him. And the funny thing was, man, just a couple years ago, Dorsey was the hot guy in Buffalo, and everybody loved him. And when they fired him, Bills fans just weren't even that upset. And Steelers fans rejoiced when Matt Canada, I mean, my gosh, poor Matt Canada. Fans at Pittsburgh Penguins games were chanting fire Canada. Fans at games unrelated because the Steelers fans are all over this country. So games in up in Boston, Red Sox games late in September, fans were chanting fire Canada. I mean, that guy really got, <laughs> he really got it. But I think he got it obviously because the offense underperformed, performed terribly, really, but also because they didn't seem well-prepared. Canada's final game two weeks ago in Cleveland was embarrassing for a professional offense, as the Steelers were a comedy of errors in terms of their miscommunications, the number of times that they ran dead plays. They ran a, they ran a swing screen to a running back with three receivers on the perimeter, all running routes, none of whom were blocking for the screen. Three unblocked defenders came screaming downhill to bury Jalen Warren in the backfield. I mean, it just was, they, on one play, they snapped the ball while right guard James Daniels was standing up, looking back at Kenny Pickett. And the, the defensive tackle lined up over Daniels, just stormed into the backfield and to hit Pickett. I mean, it just, it didn't look like an NFL offense. And so he probably deserved to lose his job, which is something that, you know, you don't want to say. But but my contention was always that it wasn't the play calling. The play calling was the product of a poorly prepared team. And the inability to execute the plays was a reflection of the preparation. So to wrap this up, I really believe that while fans are often right to criticize offense coordinators, I sometimes think that the criticism that, that, they're, that they're directing is misguided when they just yell, like, you know, run a different play. Oftentimes, it won't, it won't matter if they run a different play or not because the preparation is not there. And if they run that, that different play, the, the odds are they're not going to execute that very well. What you do in the NFL between when, when one game ends on Sunday and when the next game kicks off, all of that, that's what makes an offensive coordinator great or causes him to lose his job. Not so much what exactly he does on that Sunday. All right, that's it for, for this week's episode of The Call Sheet. Thank you for going down that road with me. I really love to talk about 
you know, the, the nuances of coaching. And I hope you got something out of that, that, that discussion. We'll be back next week for episode number 34. Boy, there's some great players who wore the number 34. I'm going to have a tough choice trying to pick a guy for next week. So I hope you'll join me on, on that one. And in between then and now, have a great week, everybody.